if at that point in time there would have been NFTs, Ceausescu would have hopped on that. Oh my bandwagon. God, Ceausescu would have been on those NFTs in the seventies. Like, <laughs> from what I've like learned so far. <laughs> Yeah, I think the like general explanation for the whole thing and why it all came crashing down, like on from what I heard and again in my family, was, <laughs> uh, it was, it was something in the lines of like some men are bad and power hungry, and if you give those men communisms, they will do dictatorships and austerities, and then liberal heroes will rise and give their lives to start a revolution of the proletariat. So the proletariat may produce capital and have like the right or like the opportunity, I guess, to receive increasingly small amounts of that capital. So the libs gave us <laughs> communism. <laughs> In the words of a previous guest, and work. Back, 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 back <laughs> with a new episode because I managed to grab hold of someone because this is how we do podcasts now by kidnapping people just before, <laughs> just before they go on summer breaks. And guess what? It's uh, not only that we have a guest, we have a first time guest, a podcast virgin, if I may creepily <laughs> add. Uh, so uh, who are you and how did you get into my house? <laughs> Uh, that's weird. I never thought of myself as a virgin or not a virgin. I never really <laughs> thought about the concept of virginity. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, I'm Ira and, um, I'm a special snowflake that's here to talk about politics because, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have no idea how else to describe myself in this context. I mean, it's, it's a perfect way to describe yourself. Before we dive in, uh, would you like to engage in some banter? As I understand this is what, you know, the humans do. <laughs> On the podcast, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would, uh, I, I, I am, I consent to some ban banter. Yeah. Good, because I wanted to share with you this very interesting uh, phenomenon that is called our old episode about Otto Weininger's uh, misogyny index. And this is the one YouTube clip that gets all the weird comments. <laughs> <laughs> so can I, can I just uh, give you the comment? to read because I think this is such a wonderful I don't even know how to call it it's just yeah. special okay um such a modernized view but I can't believe that this was a viewpoint of power plays that led to world war one and so on oh uh, sure uh, <laughs> <laughs> might have been more of a group thing or not uh, <laughs> uh, seems some of the points Ayn Rand what okay um, oh yeah I mean was pushing to prevent the fall of Western civilization. No disrespect, but uh, <laughs> many other empires gave hard truths that of Romania, of course, long adapted. I'm not sure what, like, Romania was adapting to, whatever. I, I think there's a confusion between the Roman Empire and Romania, I think. Oh, I oh think, my god. I think, I think. Okay, you're doing forensics. Okay. Um, <laughs> easy communication and being able to laugh, laugh off the mundane is the ultimate gift. Okay, we're going into fortune cookie yeah. territory. <laughs> Uh, not to mention, pure masculinity is so needed, uh, not wanted, uh, no, this is like in parentheses, not wanted by the oh, profiteers oh, oh, oh. of chaos. The prophets of chaos are profiteers, because it says... I mean, por que no los dos? 
Okay. To prevent... Oh, yeah. So not to mention pure masculinity is so needed to prevent third world decline of the grotesque and what is the open door that allows corruption to become a dominant power. This dude should get into anarchy, honestly, but like... <laughs> uh, anarchy of the mind, <laughs> of syntax, in any yeah. case. Uh, an emperor is needed or primitive behavior embraced? Mental health could become a weakness. Uh, and I guess that is like your astrology chart for the week. Because I, I don't I, I don't understand what the fuck I just read. Yeah, I mean, is there anything to understand besides the fact that the dude is arguing with himself and all the voices inside their head? Yeah, it's super weird because he, he makes all of these points, but then he's like, you know... Refuting them not. as well, yeah... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, a lot of butts also. I love it I when mean... they do the butts. They always, they always do the butts. Gentlemen love butts. <laughs> I am given to understand. Anyway, I hope people keep it up. I mean, I love the comments on this episode. Honestly, it, it's a lot of engagement and it seems like a lot of thought was put into it. So like, yeah. I, I'm kind of still surprised about how... I, I, th- I think listening comprehension is a problem with many people because I... Th- I, I, I think it's very clear in that episode that we're making fun and criticizing all the points Otto Weininger uh, was writing about. But people are like, oh, thank you very much for introducing me to Otto Weininger. I'm actually enjoying his book. Oh, this is very interesting. And he actually had a point. <laughs> like, um, I feel like that's, you know, uh, like, maybe it's a case of like a uh, conservative. I forgot the name of the Facebook group. God damn it. It's fine. Things reactionaries say that would be awesome if they were true. Oh. But only it's not ironic. It's just like real, I guess. Yeah. I guess so we can uh, dive into the episode then now that uh, we've had our dessert. And, you know, I woke up today, I looked out the window and thought to myself, you know what today would be a good day for? What? What would it be? (laughs) (laughs) Talking about communism. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's always a great day to talk about communism. It's just a wonderful topic. On a more serious note, um, I've been meaning to discuss uh, with someone who is equally curious uh, an idea that has been confounding me since uh, since I was a kid, basically. And uh, that is, why if communism was so bad, and I mean, it was even by leftist standards, I think this is not controversial. If that was the case, why did people put up with it for as long as they did? And uh, I don't know about you, but the quick answers I was given along the years always seemed rather unsatisfactory. And uh, as the generation that was either not yet born or, you know, were toddlers during the regime change, basically what we were given as an explanation or an analysis about communism was communism bad. (laughs) (laughs) I I know it sounds cheeky and stuff, but like, sadly, it kind of is the case that... No, that's a literal description. Yeah, so like in terms of public discourse and outside academia, because there has been scholarship that is, you know, more complex than that, obviously, and there are even some good books, but in the public discourse, you just get communism bad and, you know, you get told all the horrifying stories and there are plenty, of course, but like that 
you know, that doesn't really answer the question of, you know, why it lasted as long as it did, because it's not just two or three years of terror. Uh, yeah. I don't know. What did uh, you hear from your parents about, you know, how things were and why didn't things change earlier? Or did you have any discussions like that? No, I, I honestly wasn't that curious about this stuff as a kid. And mm-hmm. uh, it was just sort of like a given, like they would tell you in school and at mm-hmm. home and wherever they can. Like, uh, I grew up hearing stories of oppression and austerity, but also in like a very generic way. Like Mm -hmm. it was, it seemed like sort of a template for the, for, for like these stories of like oppression, you know, what you couldn't buy, what you would go for to prison for. And, um, nowadays it's more like I talk about the political work I tried to do and my mom or my dad would will literally just say, but it's a utopia communism. I lived in actual communism for 24 years so yeah so of course I ask like uh, okay I fucking hate Soviet economics and what have you but like can you just like give me any like particular specific answers mm-hmm. and um honestly it just seems to me like they conflate the like Soviet method of seizing and organizing the means of production which as far as I know, isn't the actual proletariat seizing the means of production, but more like a hostile corporate takeover, followed by heavy restructuring and quite a bit of layoffs. And uh, like by layoffs, I mean mass murder and <laughs> ethnic cleansings. Uh, yeah, in and Soviet, <laughs> in Soviet bloc, <laughs> layoffs just yeah. are permanent. Oh my god, that is the meme. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, I feel like they conflate all of that with. All leftist politics and that's basically why communism is bad is just that it's a case of they've literally only lived and experienced and know of the like Marxist Leninisms and Stalinisms and Chaoshisms and so on and so forth that as far as I can tell again not having been that curious as a kid yeah (laughs) I think I think there's something to be said about the fact that people who have lived through the regime in different periods of their lives, obviously they have experienced it differently. Uh, I think your parents are slightly younger, right? They they just came oh, of age. Yeah, like the, the 80s were was their youth so basically it was like the millennials before the millennials oh no yes yeah 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 so yeah. they were they were fucked up they the 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 i think if if you come of age when whatever regime or system that you are living under is in decline or is in major crisis uh, i think it will have a disproportionate impact on how you view the system or how much faith you have in it because i think this illusionment was a big thing in the 80s for many people for many people who were young especially then whereas for I think like grandparents or maybe older people uh, they had um, another reference point so to speak because some of them also remembered the time before the communist regime or they also had the not to give spoilers but they also remembered the better years whatever their definition <laughs> yeah. was of the better years so it's it's interesting and I think what uh, what I learned uh, over the course of my uh, very disorganized readings on the period was that although it was called the block <laughs> communist block 
uh, everyone had their thing in a way and no one way of organizing as you said was the inevitable way of doing things uh, so people were like trying to gauge yeah. the, the leeway the, and the freedom they had within the given paradigm but getting back <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I said uh, uh, that the explanation uh, explanations I remember getting uh, could generally be uh, deemed unsatisfactory but uh, I would also uh, say that they could be categorized as the following one of them was the essentialist argument basically the there's just something deep down that's wrong in the moral fiber of you know people who allow themselves to be ruled by autocrats or theocrats because this was the sort of argument that was also used uh, a while back when you know hating on muslims in europe was uh, the bigotry du jour and it's still uh, you know trotted out every now and again when people feel like uh, revisiting the old hits and and the second one was i don't know how to call it the defeatist one the i don't know we couldn't do much about it at the time we can't really control our circumstances now either history just happens i don't have just living it yes so like it's yeah it's defeatism basically and um, remembering again the sort of uh, material about the the communist period in Romania I I would say that uh, one of the things that I do remember seeing uh, quite a few things uh, about is the one on the resistance so the people who you know opposed the system uh, the ones who were exiled who were you know as as you said said laid off (laughs) Well, um, uh, but 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 I think this just deepens the question of you know if it was this repressive, like how did it hang on to power this much? Because if if it's intolerable, then I still yeah the, the question of why persists for me too. Because like side note, I remember reading tens of copies of Memoria. Mm-hmm. Um, this magazine that uh, described first and third hand accounts of the lives of like political prisoners and it did this in a way that I can only describe as like an Othkami Schindler's list if it was written at the peak of the like torture porn era mm. <laughs> um, yeah and my grandpa must have had like at least 50 copies of it that I really dug into uh, that might be how I discovered my love of horror but <laughs> anyways it didn't really like teach you about the resistance of like or like what these people were actually in prison for a lot of the time it was or like really cover like the resistance it just taught you what happened when they got you as a person who was revolutionary to them in some way Mm -hmm. and it also had deeply religious undertones but I I guess I might have tried looking into it at some point but I I think that these early memories of just like reading about the torture and the terror and everything just like sort of solidified this view of what was happening of like of it being like inevitable and <laughs> I don't know how to say it. like it I didn't really get room to be curious about it mm-hmm. in any way because it was so like set in stone and everything was telling you about communism <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah sorry that was like a little off track but, yeah. do, you, do, you, do you also remember because uh, I think also in terms of the general tone of discussion it was a bit all over the place so in one uh, instance as you said when they talk, talked about the dissenters and the martyrs right uh, it was a very solemn tone 
cartoon, right? Yeah. And tragic. But also, if you remember, for quite a while, I think they might still do it because uh, I don't have a TV now. <laughs> um, uh, they would trot out these news uh, pieces about the communist nostalgics who would visit Ceausescu's tomb. Oh, uh, oh, I, I, I think I think uh, that it was every year that they did this. I uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, if it was for like the 23rd of August or when they went to to the cemetery uh, and they used to film usually pensioners and I, I I know it was treated like ha 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 you know like isn't it funny like all these weird people so I it, it was you know in terms of tone it was all over the place but. Uh, First, everyone, every one of the adults, uh, I remember, was sort of laughing along. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, it's like... A... <laughs> but as the 90s, you know, the hopefulness of the 90s wore off, I remember quite a few of them saying something along these lines. Oh, it was bad by the end of it. <laughs> True. Uh, and the 80s were really horrid, but it hadn't been like that before. No, I have literal, literally never heard this in my family. Like, please get to this family. <laughs> I would honestly, it would be a step up. Yeah, that sounds that sounds shitty of me, but you don't have, I, I don't give a shit, actually. <laughs> but no, I, I, I mean, it makes sense if you said, like, your parents came of age that, like, obviously. Oh, it's not just kids, the parents, but... it's the grandparents. I mean, the, the, not the gr- all of the grandparents. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll probably we'll, get, we'll get to there. this later at some point, yeah. <laughs> so this, this obviously uh, got me a bit intrigued. And when I pressed them, they would say things like, well, uh, things were okay until sort of the 80s and then it started going downhill and they would have different timelines for uh, when this happened and the causes of it. I remember quite a few people mumbling that it was after Ceausescu's visit to North Korea or China, I think, in 1971. Uh, that he became increasingly enthralled by this sort of Juchism idea, you know, the God Emperor Supreme Leadership. Oh, is that the thing that they tell? I, I remember this from history class, like the cult of the personality yes, thing yes. going like into tur- turbo mode. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure if this is the case. And I think there's a quite a bit of Orientalism going on there, you know, they went yeah. to the East where the crazy authoritarians are and, you know, he got the bug. Yeah, because I remember like this cult of personality bullshit being like a thing in Soviet, in the other Soviet states as yeah. well, not no. just like here. Yeah. Then you had the conspiracy theorists and these were the ones who had a Similar explanation to what happened, you know, uh, in communist Romania to the awful war and atrocities that followed the dissolution of Yugoslavia, weirdly enough. And that explanation was that, and I quote, Sunt interese So that basically means, anti-corruption. So that basically means, you know, there's this elite group of people who had, you know, a vested interest in making sure that uh, the communist paradise that was Romania, along with the Chad, Titoist, Socialist Republic of Yugoslavia, uh, had to fail, you know, because, oh. yeah. They needed the Nusseres. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, 
just like every conspiracy theory, this one, yeah, it does have like a kernel of truth in the sense that whatever system is dominant at a given time uh, will tend to regard any real alternative to it as a possible competitor and enemy and will try to, you know, hinder its progress. That's true, but yeah. like, agenturi li straine. Yeah, that's a bit of a stretch. Though. Yeah, yeah. And it could also be argued for anything ever. Of course, of course. And it's absolutely the case that uh, in the 20th century, Western democracies have uh, resorted to making alliances with all, sort of, all sorts of dictators and like terrible right-wing authoritarians to ward off the progress of any socialist movements or communist As parties. As they do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think the like general explanation for the whole thing and why it all came crashing down, like on from what I heard and again in my family, who's, <laughs> uh, was something in the lines of like some men are bad and power hungry, and if you give those men communisms, they will do dictatorships and austerities, and then liberal heroes will rise and give their lives to start a revolution of the proletariat. So the proletariat may produce capital and have like the right or like the opportunity, I guess, to receive increasingly small amounts of that capital. So the libs gave us <laughs> communism? <laughs> no, the libs saved us from communism. That's why it came crashing down. But they of also liberalism. gave the proletariat power. Yeah, they give the proletariat the power to like not have ownership the over the means of production. Oh, okay, they they're allowed to not have ownership over the, the means the of production. The burden is lifted. <laughs> yes, the burden is lifted. <laughs> and like then the proletariat will be able to purchase everything that it ever wanted. Uh, like British music and American <laughs> jeans and like British American tobacco. Uh but not like housing or healthcare. Those are communist things. It's fine. I, I, I understand nowadays <laughs> the whole uh, business model is to not be able to buy anything anymore. You just rent things yeah. out, services you out. You can like, anyhow, probably so. rent a heart at some point, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, all of my, basically all of my childhood memories of communism equals bad were related to, and why it came crashing down were related to authoritarianism and like austerity and... You know, all of that. Not being able to buy things. Yeah. And I guess poverty is better because you cannot afford to buy things, but the things are on the shelf. So you're like free and it's your fault. Whereas austerity is like this collective oppressive experience. And I do remember it being tied a lot to austerity. Yeah. I think austerity is, uh, as you said, yes, it is a collective uh, experience. Whereas if you see the things on the shelves, but you don't have the money, although it sounds really masochistic, but maybe you can internalize the whole, it's your fault, you're not working hard enough, but maybe yeah. if you were. Whereas although it is less centered on your guilt if you uh, are living under austerity, like everyone is, you know, poor or everyone is uh, enduring the same hardships. Yeah. But also, it means that whatever needs changing is probably going to be more than just what you can personally affect <laughs> in terms yeah. of an individual. And that's scary because if you're not used to seeing yourself as an individual within a system society community who is working also towards not 
not your, just your personal goals or your family's goals, but also the wider community, then of course it's scary because like, how do you even? Yeah, you don't have control over anything. Yeah. Like, and capitalism like, gives you the sense of control. I always boil down everything to capitalism. This will happen several times throughout this episode. <laughs> I am that type of person. <laughs> so we had the, the nostalgics, we had the conspiracy theorists, we had the, the, the orientalists. <laughs> there was, uh, but there was also like a more down-to-earth uh, group who were, who were more into what they called kitchen table politics. And they would point uh, to the foreign loans incurred by the communist state at the the tail end of the 70s and how Ceausescu's stubbornness about repaying those loans as soon as possible created the shortages and the austerity that you mentioned. And basically, in their view, uh, the regime didn't change in the uh, in 1989, you know, when the revolution happened, but in the early 80s, uh, because it wasn't just about a winter of discontent or a couple of years of rationing. It was a realignment at a deeper level. Not to give too many spoilers, <laughs> uh, but maybe this last group was, uh, was onto something, at least according to someone who I came across, who had finally provided a more exhaustive explanation, at least from my point of view, uh, of what had happened uh, uh, in that period. So we're going to be quoting extensively from uh, the work of Cornel Bahn, an associate professor of international political economy at Copenhagen Business School, and specifically from his paper titled Sovereign Debt, Austerity and Regime Change, the case of Nicolae Ceausescu's Romania. There are also some links from other uh, articles from him, everything in the description for all you geeks. <laughs> yeah, I actually uh, tried and failed to read this paper <laughs> in case you haven't already noticed by my extensive and like in-depth political economic analysis of the past like 60, 100 years. I don't f even fucking know. <laughs> uh, but I did check with a couple of friends of mine and apparently the dude is legit. I checked with friends in academia and they were like, yeah, he's he's legit. He's legit. Yeah. <laughs> he's one that's of the good what, ones. <laughs> yeah, that's what I have to say on the subject. <laughs> yeah. Group think approved. There, are, there you go. Left is making <laughs> lists of people again. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Old habits uh, die hard. This is how it starts. <laughs> The paper begins uh, by providing a context for the period before the start of the decline. Bond says that from the late 1940s to the mid-1970s, the poor southern periphery of Europe saw an unprecedented pace of industrialization, uh, but he also points out that this sort of growth happened under a variety of political regimes from authoritarian corporatism in you know, Spain to Stalinism in southeastern Europe. Yeah. Uh, the consensus at the time was that state-led industrialization was the main engine of economic modernization. Uh, mm. <laughs> I mean, that's what the dude's yeah, 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 yeah. fault. So, you know, yeah. what you gonna do? Uh, <laughs> known as developmentalism, this outlook on how to run your society had regional values variations, import substitution industrialization in Latin America and parts of Africa and Southeast Asia, uh, indicative planning in some of the expert-led economies of Asia, and centrally planned and state-owned economies in Eastern Europe, China, and Vietnam. So as mentioned before, it wasn't just a cookie-cutter template that was applied to everyone. Like, there were some regional variations. Yeah, I don't know of them, but sounds yeah, like yeah, it. Well, I'm, we're learning, we're learning. This is a I learning experience. I know of them, but I don't know about them. Thank you. <laughs> this, this podcast is all about lifelong learning. Oh. The more you know. <laughs> okay. In the case of 
Romania, this growth happened despite the fact that both the Nazis and then the Soviets had run it roughshod. <laughs> um, it has been calculated that the various forms of exploitation accounted for 86% of the total national income between 1944 and 1948, you know, just to give you a <laughs> rough example. So, uh, yeah, it turns out imperialism sucks, whether or not you <laughs> are dressed in a spiffy Hugo Boss uh, uniform or you cover it with a Yushank or something. And... However, despite getting fucked in the rear <laughs> between 1950 and 1973, Romania joined Yugoslavia and Bulgaria in achieving average annual growth rates that were above both the Central European and the West European average. Uh, the industrial sector was at the heart of this growth, with the Romanian economy increasing by a rate of 68% per decade in this period. Oh, okay. Like, the United States would be proud yeah. of our GDP growth. Uh, yeah, I mean, impressive numbers. They're all about the GDP. Mm. And although we all grew up with uh, the image of, you know, the steel and coal industrial behemoths as the hallmarks of the Romanian industry, uh, apparently there was quite a bit of uh, uh, diversifying and development in sectors such as engineering, uh, high-end wood processing and uh, electronics. In fact, uh, by 1983, the engineering sector was so developed that it ranked the 10th largest in the world. I didn't know that. All of my parents, friends, everybody that I know is like some sort of engineer. My mom tried yeah, being a doctor yeah, and also end up being, ended up being told, no, you're going to be an engineer. This was a fetish level thing in yeah. communist countries, like be an engineer. Like. Oh, it wasn't even like her parents that told her to become an engineer. It was like the teachers. They were like, no, you're, you're going to be an engineer. Yeah. As Cornel Ban remarks, and I think we've also heard this echoed by people who've lived through the regime, uh, the upswing during this decade, at least for a huge portion of the population that had seen very little social mobility before the war, uh, was a source of nationalist pride and gave the Communist Party enough legitimacy that people didn't ask too many questions about, uh, you know, what happened to the dissenting voices. <laughs> Thank yous today. <laughs> Uh, to give you an idea, if you're listening to this as someone from outside a former Soviet bloc, the leap in living standard was such that many people went from subsistence farmers to having access to jobs in cities and receiving training for industry and service positions, although it wasn't always the best of training, but that's <laughs> another thing, to having their kids go to college or different vocational schools to become engineers, <laughs> teachers, clerks, <laughs> artists, and so on. I actually do have, like, um, on my, actually do have an intervention here, like, on uh, my, uh, uh, like, on my dad's side. Uh, both my grandpa and my grandma were, like, the first people in their respective families to get uh, higher education. And then, like, go on to live middle-class lives. Yes, class was still a thing. Mm. Uh, that might be a hint that it wasn't actually, like, communisms. But and anyways. <laughs> um, yeah, like, that shit didn't happen before. Like, my grandpa and grandma must have had, like, shit, I don't even know. Like, between five to ten siblings, like, between the two of them. And they all lived in the fucking same room. One and of my grandpa ha grandpas had eleven. 
Holy shit. Yeah. yeah. I know. Okay. So they were actually like a small family <laughs> yeah, that lived in one room and like they farmed, but like they were poor as fucking dirt. Mm-hmm. And from what I remember, neither of them like ever looked back and went like, ah, oh, the good old days, you know, like how wonderful those like 15 hour work days were when I was eight, mm-hmm. you know, like th- they talk about it, but not like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Um, Yeah, like, uh, they were like, it was kind of shit, it was kind of okay, and then it got increasingly and terminally shit, basically. <laughs> That's, uh, That's the vibe, the general vibe. Great analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Since we've mentioned uh, dissenting voices, and because we're not looking at history with, like, rose-tinted glasses, we have to add that it wasn't just those who objected to the principles of communism that got on the wrong side of the regime. Uh, So if you were among the farmers who had already owned some land or real estate or factories and so on, uh, your experience of the system was not good. (laughs) You know, like even if you didn't, you know, get sent to permanent retirement, Okay. Uh, <laughs> Even if you didn't get laid off. Yeah, uh it wasn't it was still it was still going to be a scar scarring experience. And I specifically remember now having a conversation with someone who said that their father uh how how uh he perceived the whole uh, collectivization uh because he was a farmer who had actually it wasn't an hacienda <laughs> but he had you know he had a big household and uh, lots of uh, like gospodaria uh, exactly uh, animals and some land and he usually hired hands you know to work the fields and everything and actually it was interesting because i was told about the very different ways that Uh, this person's mother and father perceived what happened because, for instance, as I said, the the, the father was the owner, you know. Yeah. His wife was one of the hired hands that he eventually married. You know, he fell in love and they married. Uh, what, a, what a love story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, it's the trad way. <laughs> Uh, and of course, of course, like uh, she she didn't perceive it as being as traumatic, like it wasn't something that she felt she owned to the same degree that he did. And she uh, did not. And she did not. And also, even afterwards, like uh, she said, they were a few years later discussing about, well, it's actually, you know, if, if it's done well, uh, this, you know, pooling together of resources, both manpower and uh, actual like material yeah. resources can can work and be efficient uh, you know it, it's it's not in essence a bad idea if the execution is right and although uh, they were uh, having like benefits materially from the new system yeah like they didn't uh, they didn't starve you know they didn't ha- lack things the father still perceived it as something deeply traumatic so uh, things are going to hit you differently depending on your position I have so many thoughts on this that I can't even like put them no, no I mean Um, in the idea that yeah obviously this depends a lot on like um, upbringing and like culture and Mm -hmm. whatever you know sociology 
whatever. Uh, but yeah, and it depends a lot on like how you interpret it. And obviously, if you had access to private, like I, I imagine a lot of people not being like billionaires or whatever, but I imagine a lot of people that now have like private property in this mm-hmm. system and are doing well in this system would not be like, yeah, yeah, I totally want to like do an, an anarcho-collectivism or whatever. So it's fine. You can like still keep all of your shit. It's just that nobody will be working for you to make you more shit. So yeah, that's sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Everything boils down to capitalism. If only they would have listened to you <laughs> when they tried to do <laughs> the private, the, the publicization. What the I don't know. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. We don't want your shit. You can keep your shit. You're just not getting labor anymore. Okay, so now let's turn our attention to what was happening in terms of geopolitics. In the mid-60s, the Romanian Communist Party took a nationalist turn, becoming increasingly more comfortable with being in conflict with the Soviet Union and the rest of the bloc. For instance, in 1963, the RCP uh, leaders defied the USSR's plans to force Romania to focus on agriculture, which was seen by Khrushchev as uh, its competitive um, advantage. Do you know what what I'm referencing here? Um, Have you heard about this? Because I think they mentioned this in school, but... uh, They mentioned it in school when, like, Ceausescu was like, fuck you, Khrushchev, or what? No, no, no. I I mean the the Soviet plan to... uh, So, so basically, uh, as far as I remember this, it wasn't actually Khrushchev's plan. He probably was just the one trying to implement it. It was an engineer. (laughs) Uh, who proposed this thing whereby countries within the Soviet bloc, sphere of influence, however you want to call it, would each specialize on one or two in- industries uh, which were considered their competitive advantage and then, you know... That totally sounds like communism. Competitive <laughs> advantages and <I> like <laughs> building corporate consolidation, na- nation-state consolidation. It was communism. It wasn't... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, have a, I actually don't remember this but it, it it seems about right yeah. yeah. Cornel Bahn points out that this nationalist variant of Stalinism contains systemic contradictions. Oh, big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> On the one hand, Romania had a rigid, centrally planned economic structure with a negligible private sector relying almost exclusively on the profits of state-owned enterprises and wage taxes to feed its public budget. Mm. Uh, what he highlights again and again is that this was a choice, not an inevitability of how the regime had to progress, as he gives the examples of Hungary and Poland, which experimented with alternative forms of property, economic coordination, and economic sourcing of political legitimacy. In short, the stress was on ensuring basic needs rather than on building proto-consumer societies, as in the case of uh, these other uh, socialist countries uh, I mentioned. Even du- during the boom uh, of the 60s and 70s, household consumption in Romania of both public and private uh, goods was subordinated to industrial development. So um, so what you're saying is that the people did not have and weren't going to have like their British American t- tobacco genes. Like, <laughs> liberty be damned. <laughs> uh, yeah, they would have Chico and uh, Carpazzi. Yeah. <laughs> probably <Okay>. so <laughs> and as much as the state was willing to produce yeah 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 and also dance pataru instead of british <laughs> pop music so take it or leave it comrade <laughs> Another thing that this turn away from Moscow meant was that if the regime wanted to sustain its industrialization, it needed access to financing, know-how, and 
market. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that explains Ceausescu's love affair with the West. Uh, the economic opening towards Western Europe was actually not a PR stunt on Ceausescu's behalf. During the 1970s, Romania was the only Warsaw Pact country with a generalized trade agreement with the EEC, the European Economic Community, which meant it could export more of, of its wares to the capitalist markets in wares. the 80s. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we exported more of our stuff to, to capitalist markets than to socialist states. So okay. While the rest... Communism. Yeah. <laughs> while uh, the rest of the Soviet bloc depended heavily on out dated local designs, uh, Romanian industry was churning out more updated versions of, among other sophisticated products, French and German designed cars, trucks, helicopters, jets, and turbines. So, you know, the Dacia 1310 and 1300. Yes, I do know that. It, it was actually a Renault car model. Uh, you say more updated models? You said, like, more updated models, but, like, the stories that I heard uh, were, uh, it was basically, like, a cheap uh, generic brand knockoff of uh, Renault or whatever. This is what I heard, that, that like Romania was doing them, but was doing them worse because nothing can be as good in the East as it is in the West. I think it's compared to what uh, the designs were from like the Soviet version of the same product. Oh, okay. So it was like an updated version of the Soviet Car. knockoff. <laughs> Of the Renault. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, I think I think the whole idea is that, for instance, other uh, countries produced like Lada. Oh yeah, like they made their own like their own shit, version, and we self-colonized in yes, in this exactly. Tree? Okay. Yeah, <laughs> Fun. Yeah. 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 Um, and you also had Olsit, uh, which was actually a joint venture. So I, I'm, I'm just now like, a, it's not self-colonizing though. It's just like I mean, you try something new. <laughs> don't, don't, don't this him. He was the person new. that, it, yeah, he could like go down in history as the inventor of the generic brand in Eastern Europe. Uh, Romania was also unique because of its early membership in the Bretton Woods institutions beginning in 1972, which enabled it to access their financing on very generous terms. May I ask what uh, Bretton Woods is and why one or their nation state would benefit from uh, being in such a Thing. Seems like business institution. Uh, you know how after the Great War, World War One. Oh, the Great War. Okay. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> everyone was in debt. Oh uh, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, they tried to pass around, you know, the debt <laughs> to each other, and like, oh yes, I guess we paid it. Oh. Uh, and what they did, and this was one of the causes leading up to all the, you know, financial <laughs> problems in the thirties, was that they uh, did a lot of currency manipulation. They would devalue their currency, for instance, severely to both do price dumpings sort of stuff like you know if your currency is weaker then you are better at exports because your exported goods are cheaper so you can sell more isn't that what like interest rates like do um that's access to capital for stuff okay uh, if you're an exporting country then if you devalue your currency you can sell more cheap stuff yeah. Yeah. And also, if you devalue your currency and you also inject a lot of it into the economy, then you can also pay your debts yeah. nominally quicker. 
Okay. And so the Bretton Woods was a thing that they held talks about even before the uh, beginning, I think, of the Second World War and during the war, and then it became a thing after. And apparently there were a lot of discussions of how to make this thing work, and a lot of the good ideas were (laughs) axed by the US. Oh, so it was like basically an institution that regulated currency manipulation, or you had like a little cartel of like the currency idea was the following in order to avoid the whole uh, it was called beggar thy neighbor uh, <laughs> thing that they did uh, yes in the interwar period with the whole uh, currency manipulation the convention was okay we will use the dollar as a reference point for all uh, oh, currencies okay. yes oh, okay now i understand and okay. that was also tied to the gold standard for a while and then nixon came in and they were like no nah okay uh, history makes a lot more sense now okay yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. thank you for that okay yeah, you're welcome And since we mentioned the 70s, can you think of any major disruptive event during this decade? I I don't know, like oil things? (laughs) Just like general oil? Palm oil. Like coconut oil. Like there were like... Just it all over. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, p- petrol, petrol oh. things. <laughs> oh, you have some strange kings. <laughs> so, yeah, if there's one thing that you really don't want to when you're all about industrialization is rising energy prices. <laughs> and uh, as a small aside to current news, this is one of the reasons why currently Germany is being uh, coy about many things in uh, its foreign policy because uh, it's industry and manufacturing also relies on a certain natural resource that a certain other country (laughs) has quite a lot of and another side note i still to this day like uh dream of the downfall of the german auto manufacturing sector because i worked for like a german auto manufacturer for like a few months and uh yeah it can really like I'm just gonna stop here now because that's just—it's just, it's <laughs> just gonna to get, get like xenophobic, and I don't want to get like uh, xenophobic because that's not my vibe. You see some shit. You especially see some shit as a white collar like uh, worker that uh, has access to the areas where the truly poor work. Yeah, you see, uh, you see some shit, and you see a weird pride in your German managers, which are all German. Sorry, go on. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Cornel Bahn notes that the first oil shock, which happened in 1973, did not affect Romania as much as it affected other developing countries, because at that time uh, it was able to supply, the country was able to supply a large share of its energy needs from uh, local oil fields, and uh, it managed to strike machinery for oil barter deals with countries such as Iran, no, I'm not going to say it in the American way. With countries such as Iran, Iraq, and Libya. <laughs> I support this. <laughs> uh, however, the second oil shock uh, really rolled us. <laughs> and this happened because of both outside reasons as well as self-inflicted ones. I mean... <laughs> Internationally, the second phase of the old crisis triggered a debt crisis. Within the country, Ceausescu had pretty unwisely decided to focus efforts on the most oil-guzzling industries, tripling Romania's demand for oil just as prices were high and loans were drying up. Was this like one of the first like actual real-life like bubbles that uh, Romania was like involved in or something? 
thing because uh, you'd you'd think you could like sort of you know have some um, <laughs> the opposite of hindsight <laughs> forethought. I think Homie was just really buying the whole idea that he was the good communist, as he portrayed himself, and he he was portrayed in in the Western media right as the good communist. Yeah, the good and he me. and he drank his own Kool-Aid and he thought that you know it this wouldn't apply to him like all the bad things happening all around the world but he they he, happen to bad people yeah he, he figured it out <laughs> good hard-working people get that trickle-down capital um this uh predicament was deepened by two geopolitical shocks the first one was the Iranian revolution uh Iran had been Romania's main supplier of oil and its uh replacement Iraq, (laughs) then went on to wage an eight-year war with Iran, (laughs) which uh, meant decreasing oil sales to Romania. So, you know, when uh, all of your friends start fighting each other, it's uh, maybe time time to reconsider the sort of friends you make. Yeah, yeah, maybe (laughs) (laughs) this was going to be a too long joke. (laughs) So you might ask yourself, why do you do it, chief? <laughs> why invest in oil refineries during a fucking oil crisis? Hmm. The author asks the same question, <laughs> especially since, historically speaking, there is an important correlation between high sovereign debt followed by austerity. Hmm. Why does it sound familiar? <laughs> and popular uprisings that lead to regime change, regardless of whether that regime is democratic or not. Democratic and air quotes. So, you know, knowing the pattern, as you said, like foresight, <laughs> uh, <coughs> the party still made the risky decision to pay its foreign debt as early as possible at the cost of economic recession and dramatically compressed consumption at home. And again, this was not an inevitable outcome because other countries hit by the debt crisis successfully asked for debt rescheduling and haircuts for creditors. Before we go over the author's perspective on this, do you have any theories as to why the luminaries of communist Romania (laughs) thought this would be a good idea? Uh, well, uh, having learned uh, all of this, I think I'm just gonna like actually defer to uh, my mom and uh, like my parents and mm. my the evil dude argument. Mom knows best. Yeah, um, but <laughs> jokes aside, though, like could it be that like a highly centralized form of economic and political control can only give birth to autocratic leaders and that if you do have like an evil dude or just a dude that has enough power and resources to become deeply and like truly egomaniacal in this context like they might just act in accordance to their own personal let's say profit maybe and just forget they're meant to be doing a socialism rather than a capitalism i'm not i'm not clear on that but so you're <laughs> saying that just because you're all about discor- discursively you're all about the proletariat and uh, you know workers rights and freedom and bread for everyone if your actions don't reflect that maybe yeah maybe um, it's not that great yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, it, it might be it, you're it so radical be- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm just not a good enough team player. <laughs> the study first lays out the materials. Okay. I want to make weird sounds too now. Okay, weird sound time. Weird sounds, <laughs> getting the weird sounds out. Okay, got them. So the study uh, first lays out the materialist explanation for this. 
Uh, and that one is as follows. Uh, the sharp increase in the price of oil and development finance in the 1979 led to deep recessions and dependence on IMF and World Bank loans. In turn, this uncertainty led to policy changes, and when those policy changes failed, regimes were ripe for toppling. Hmm. Um, and an interesting take uh, mentioned uh, in the paper is that the events of December 1989 can be viewed as less of a Revolution and more of a bank run on the regime itself, with the party and the state officials and the police and secret services and the army and the most privileged members of the intelligentsia withdrawing their support for Ceausescu once a mobilized public uh, defied the regime. One might just say that they had like maybe some individualist vibes going on within this like communist party i think it's quite clear that uh they 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 saw the writing on the wall and since their main goal was keeping uh their privileged position they were like sure we need to change tack we need to sing another tune we need liberty but the need for policy change uh, does not explain why certain countries go down one route as opposed to one other so the second way to approach this is through the lens of the predominant ideas that were sort of whirling around in the heads of the decision makers in the in the Romanian Communist Party. And uh, Ban basically says that since other members of the so Soviet bloc had also become indebted to the IMF and uh, Ceausescu had seen the nature of that restructuring discussions as a, how should I put it as an encroachment on policy and sovereignty and a form of neo-colonialism, which yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. sadly kind of true, and uh, also because he thought that an eventual default would be an admission of ideological defeat, he basically decided to get rid of the debt burden as soon as possible than the cost to the population <clears throat> in the short and medium term. Okay, so basically, like, the evil dude argument works. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it was deeply personal for him in th that sense. Like, he wanted to be top dog. He didn't want to have to negotiate or have to accept conditions from anyone. And I think he was probably also deeply hurt by... <laughs> Yes, like yes. His feelings Do, he was in the, his feels. He was deeply hurt by the fact that he was not treated as the special guy by the West when, you know, shit hit the fan. He was their special guy in the 60s, but he was not their special guy when, you know, it was it came to money. I, I'm not like I'm not sure if you could you can call a colonialism if you just like were openly colonizing and like gleefully colonizing yourself like a couple of years before. I'm not entirely sure you can call you can then like go back and call this is like a colonialist enroachment on like our shit but it's okay if our <laughs> king does it <laughs> our short king yeah i mean this is where it gets really sad because at the end of the day whether you're sacrificing people's needs in favor of markets as we see so often today or because of wanting to be the big boy in your own neck of the woods the fact of the matter is that regular people are still the ones getting thrown off to one side and that's 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 not good from an ideological standpoint apparently Ceausescu was a 
very simple boy. <laughs> uh, for him, industrialization equaled freedom to basically do whatever the hell he wanted. Uh, and this is when the whole autarky thing was, yes, we're doing this. Freedom. Uh, citizens' material needs were something you could dispense with. Peasants should just grin and bear it because you are a master strategies and... It will trickle down. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. It will trickle the fuck down. So to meet the debt repayment schedule, Ceausescu demanded a radical revision of the five-year plan. Uh, that's how the economy worked at uh, that time. That would make the early payment of foreign debt the chief priority of economic policy. Uh, no new debt was to be contracted from private lenders or other states either. Oh, so like this is the part where Ceausescu basically decides to take like a sabbatical from the global economy to like focus on his personal He's just project. cutting out all the toxic people in his life. He is now. <laughs> okay. Uh, as investment in industrial expansion was set to continue, because, you know, stay the course, industrialization <laughs> is still what we're doing here, boys. All imports had to be cut drastically, and the value of exports had to go up. Overall, between 1981 and 1989, the supply of food staples was nearly halved. This is the, the part that we actually hear about, we heard yes, about. Okay. Yes, I mean, you know, it's food staples not caviar not i don't know gucci shoes no, no it's no, just like food staples. nutrition yes to like yes. survive calorie intake you yeah. know think of it in th those very stark terms those the things they rationed at leningrad oh no that was a bad comparison <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wow. The production of consumer goods was also nearly halved during the same period, and to make matters worse, its share in exports was increased. So not just you have less of the good stuff available, but the stuff that is produced is shipped abroad for, you know, those sweet, sweet uh, dollars. As a counterexample, again, this was not inevitable, this was a choice. Poland, which was similarly indebted, cut consumption by only 10% in 1981 and then restored it to its previous levels two years later. Yes, we're in debt, but the people shall not starve. Yeah, I mean, one would argue, like especially a communist might argue that uh, people need like food to produce. Labor, for instance. Yeah, <laughs> Ceausescu was not vibing with that apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To save dollars, barter deals paid for commodity imports. For example, the export of engineering industry outputs to Iran, Iraq, and socialist states was bartered for imports of oil and other commodities that otherwise would have had to be paid in scarce foreign currency. And as I understand, many of these deals were not exactly, you know, win-wins. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what happens when you decide to take a, take a break from, mm. like... Yeah, reality. Yeah. And uh, because, stupidly, the sheep can't stop itself until it means everything into <laughs> absurdity. In 1988 and 1989, Ceausescu decided to pay a billion dollars, like, think of it, a billion dollars, a like, billion dollars. in those years. Uh, so he decided to pay a billion dollars of debt by selling 80% of the country's gold reserves. You don't give away your capital, bitch. You're in, like, what the fuck? <laughs> I, I really wonder what, what how are he you would have start done. your artisanal do you candle think, business. Do you think if at that point in time there would have been NFTs, Ceausescu would have hopped on that? Oh my bandwagon? god, Ceausescu would have been on those NFTs in the seventies. <laughs> like, 
from what I've like learned so far. <laughs> Even the Bank for International Settlements told Ceausescu, dude, this is too harsh. Like, you really don't need to pay your debt this early. They were refusing capital. <laughs> and Ceausescu vehemently rejected the recommendation and stayed the course. You, yeah, you just don't get it. Like, his <laughs> central candle business was, like, just about to take off the ground. He just knew that. And, like, all you need to do is to be fucking supportive for a little yes. while. And then we'll all be fucking rich. Linda. I mean, yeah, I mean, don't be the bad girlfriend. You need to support and stand our short game. <laughs> yeah. Taking a small detour to our present situation, uh, I think we can see what a mess it is for, uh, you know, any country's manufacturing industry to switch from using imported components uh, to developing everything in-house, especially on a very short notice. Um, <coughs> Russia. <coughs> <laughs> that was such a such a dark jab that I didn't like it. didn't expect it. <laughs> yeah, it, it honestly took me by surprise. As formerly imported parts and materials were replaced with local substitutes of poor quality, many factories could not liquidate their stocks because of quality issues. Who knew? And had to be bailed out by the state. To make matters worse, uh, the lights went out on research and development too, as uh, during the 1980s uh, they cut subscriptions to scientific journals and all funding for study abroad opportunities. You gotta invest in R&D, bitch. Like... <laughs> we, we keep making fun on this podcast how education is not the solution to every problem that people have, but also don't make this the first thing you cut, so... <laughs> Yeah. Um, schools and the extensive apartment complexes that house the newly urbanized population saw regular electricity and heating cuts during sub-zero temperatures because an expanding industry struggling to meet the export targets of the regime needed more electricity. Uh, spending on healthcare, the hallmark of the regime's social progress, was also cut. Even As you do. Even essential items like insulin and single-use syringes were hard to come by. That reminds me of something. Yeah, it also explains the fact that uh, in the 90s when uh, we found out about, you know, AIDS as an official thing, like that existed not only in capitalist countries, but in our own neck of the wood as well, we uh, found ourselves with an epidemic on our hands because of all the, I don't know, yeah, lack of uh, syringes, I guess. Which, yeah, which like might make... And unprotected sex because condoms were not a thing that you could buy because you had to produce workers. Yeah, it, uh, yeah, and also you had to produce con condoms to come buy the, <laughs> I mean, the yeah. condoms. <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, which like uh, honestly might make one think that they are like poor and mm. like starving and whatever, which because they are, but it like made, might make one think that they're actually poor even when they're not. Is just that like daddy has plans with the capital acquired from the things you produce, and that plan is like less your well being and more his scented candle business. Daddy has a plan. Yeah, with that, I just realized now that without like any semblance of logic that this metaphor may have had has like completely crumbled, but honestly, not unlike Soviet economics, where 
communism is understood as a thing we do to like we pretend to do to cover up the fact that our entire nation state is basically one corporation and two trench coats. But aren't trench coats bourgeois? <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> confused now. I, I, I don't even know what. <laughs> I don't even know what joke to make because like I remember the clothing was awful and the fabric was shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Um, to once again paint a picture of uh, the stupid at work here. The building of a single new coal power plant in uh, Anina cost nearly three times more than the yearly investment in health and social assistance during the 1980s. Wow. No, because it's like you think, how much can a coal plant cost? Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm assuming not that much, but then you think, you know, that like... How that little did they invest in health? <laughs> yeah, yeah. How much was it? Like, how many times? Three times more. Okay, yeah. That's And it's a fucking coal... Sorry, it's a coal plant. Yeah. Very socialist. Yeah. Um, austerity also meant the uh, worsening of uh, <laughs> working conditions. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> living in a workers' utopia already, <laughs> comrade. <laughs> oh my god! Increased work uh, intensity, night shifts, uh, working Sundays, and uh, higher quotas <laughs> at no extra pay uh, became the rule. Uh, mind you, our parents were already working Saturdays, <sighs> um, all in the name of uh, expanding exports that would provide dollar dollar bales to pay off the debt. I would say that all in all, what happened in the 80s was essentially the regime pulling an Uno reverse card on the population <laughs> because it had initially, as we've seen, provided people with like social mobility, free movement from like rural areas to cities and so on. And now you had to have a sort of ID or passport thingy to reside in a city and many workers were forced into long commutes packed like sardines in buses. Maybe you've seen pictures of people crammed in buses and trains and trams and stuff. I see many pictures of people crammed in buses and trains and stuff on a regular basis. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> like I saw those pictures as a, at Electric Castle like last weekend. Yes, uh, because now they get to have glitter in their hair. So it's fine. Yeah, it's fine to do a five hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, talking about the Uno reverse card, it had promised women more independence, a more relaxed attitude towards people's choices regarding their families. Which was true, honestly, to some yeah. a, up until a point. Uh, yeah, I actually learned that for a while Romania had the highest rate of divorces in Europe. So not just that's the, the fucking it. That, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not great, 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 but considering the instances of both domestic violence still occurring and probably it wasn't you know it wasn't any better back in the days and okay. uh also uh, you know the very sexist attitude of many men uh, it was probably a good thing because it signaled the fact that women had enough resources and the necessary support to be like okay you're being an asshole i'm not going to be here and take all your abuse whether it's uh, physical or mental yeah that's the, the, that that is actually what I, what i was referring to yeah. that's great when you have a high divorce rate it usually means 
means that people are have like enough resources and or freedom to do a divorce because yeah but you know you couldn't have nice things for uh <laughs> too for long. too long of a time so uh by that time there was already an abortion ban in place oh fuck so yeah and also from never what, mind yeah <laughs> no link to the present here <laughs> Uh, and also, I don't know if your parents told you about this since they, uh, as you said, were younger, but I know my parents said that there was a sort of tax on people who were of like childbearing age, but were unmarried. So like a tax on, I don't know, being a bachelor or a single lady. <laughs> oh, wow. No, yeah, they were definitely too young for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. By early 1989, the debt had been repaid. But instead of easing the squeeze, austerity measures remained in place. Uh, did somebody <laughs> get a taste of sweet, sweet profits? <laughs> and tyranny. <laughs> and, and tyranny and, and control. And keeping the boot on the people. Yeah, and just being like a super rich, magnificent, glorious dude. Yeah. Like, mm. Mm. The minutes of Romanian Communist Party meeting from May 1989 showed that Ceausescu wanted to continue diverting resources away from basic consumption and towards exports. So uh, this was like a few months before the, the yes. revolution. Okay. Yes. And um, asked by then Trade Minister Stefan Andre to at least provide better heating for residential users, Ceausescu informed the group of his galaxy brain idea. His mind map. Yes. He wanted to use $2 billion accumulated in 1989 and the $5 billion in debt owed to Romania to build enough hard currency reserves to turn the country into a creditor. Once Romania was cut off from the international bond markets, Ceausescu hoped to turn it into a leader of industrializing <coughs> countries. Again, dream big, King, but what about the people? I will again refer to my argument about, like, a corporation in two trench coats, basically. <laughs> Doing a communism on the inside, a communism on the inside. I, I used air quotes, but that's probably not, you're not going to hear those. Uh, <laughs> yeah, doing a communism on the inside and a capitalism on the outside always results in a capitalism, mostly. I guess if we do a sort of summary of uh, what might have been in the hearts and minds of people living through it, I'm guessing that you grow up, uh, so either you were a kid or you were already an adult when the regime was at the height of its positive achievements, shall we say. And, uh, you know, the future looks promising. Of course, there are plenty of uh, things that are not great. And you maybe hear of people who are laid off <laughs> yeah. permanently. Uh, but you sort of silence all these concerns, right? Because things are looking up. Yeah. And uh, they are looking up on in terms of your prospects social mobility, working conditions, your material well-being, even social stuff, right? Like Yeah, you're getting more liberties. Yeah. And then things happen, right? And technically speaking, there was not a, there wasn't a coup in sight, right? It was still the same guy, uh, and this uh, same guy was keeping you in the dark, in the cold for fuck knows why. Because it's not like you were informed, other than we have to pay off the debt. What? Why those debt debts were incurred, and what the plan was was anyone's guess. Yeah. Uh, and then you know you get also like the abortion bans and the clamping down on people's 
just freedom to be and exist and be humans. So uh, December 1989 rolls along, and I don't think we'll uh, get into the details of what happened in this episode, but, uh, and it was traumatic for us. I don't know if you remember the fact that until I think we were like in high school-ish or something, they kept replay. This was the Christmas special, you know, the execution of the Ceausescu's was the Christmas special oh, wow. for us for... As we were growing up. Wow, I actually, like, uh, I... You uh, blocked it out? <laughs> no, I actually Googled the ex- uh, like the execution as an adult. But uh, now that you were talking about this, I was reminded of the fact that near the end, people understood communism as this thing that basically takes the goods that you produce with your label labor and makes, like, capital out of it and uses that in ways you do not understand because you do not have heat and you do not have anything. And uh, I remember seeing this like very not good documentary by recorder about the revolution and some people that are like a great liberal thinkers of Romanian telling the uh, the people expected to be then all owners of the factories. They expected to be like patron, to be business owners after the revolution. But of course, you're not going to be a business owner after the revolution. You're going to be working for, you know, for... You're going to be exchanging labor for capital, capital, for some money. And uh, that was a very sad moment for, like, because I remember that my parents sort of also might have thought about the revolution as them actually sort of seizing the means of production in some way. And that is the most messed up part of it, that by the end of communism, by the end of communism, by the end of the uh, Soviet, not Soviet, the Ceausescu regime in Romania, like people thought liberal was like seizing the means of production and having ownership over the labor or some shit. I, I, I know I uh, mentioned with uh, another one of my guests, uh, with Adele, uh, the whole 90s business with uh, people who worked in factories getting shares. Getting and, like equity in the yeah, factory. And, yeah, and, and they were hoping for a while that, well, maybe they weren't necessarily thinking in the whole in terms of seize the means of production. Uh, also because since the whole ideological discourse was drilled into them, since they were adolescents and kids, they had a sort of revulsion now uh, to towards this language. But like they were hoping that, I don't know how this thing works. I don't know how capitalism works. I don't know whether or not we'll get capitalism or whatever the fuck with this is going to be but i hope it's going to be better like people were so i don't know in a way so naive but like then again what did you expect it's not like they had access to understand what was happening both in their countries in many ways and in the world at large and so yeah they 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 were hoping for a while that things were going to get better and i think it was somewhere by the mid-90s, maybe the late 90s, that I remember many of adults in my life, so not just my parents, becoming increasingly less political in the sense that they just yeah. tuned out and the, the news was just something you kept the TV on and you were doing whatever you were doing. They would not talk about politicians in any other way than those scoundrels. I hate them. They're not doing anything for me. I'm not even expecting them to. So this is the sad part. Yeah. Now they're not even expecting them to do anything for them. I don't expect them to either for, for different <laughs> for reasons. For different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just anti-state. <laughs> 
No, but I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And I, I was like, when, when you said, when I say seize the means of production is like, they thought that that is, it's not that they actually thought of it as seizing the means of production is that that how, that's how they thought they would have labor autonomy. Basically, they would have autonomy of their, over their labor and their time and what they were going to do with it and what they were going to do with the results of their labor. And yeah. So, like, if you want to build the doTERRA of nation-states, you have to let the people willingly get on the ground floor of that amazing opportunity, as the 90s showed. Uh, so, uh, would you like to add anything else, or should we wrap this up? No, I think this ending was uh, appropriate for the times. <laughs> okay, well... Thank you very much for joining me. I hope, uh, I, I mean, I learned quite a few things uh, reading this. I hope it was uh, enjoyable for you too. I definitely learned quite a few things through this. Oh, thank you for that too. You do, do you normally do thanks at the end of podcasts? I just like, I never listen Jesus. to the end. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Uh, and um, thank you, all the five listeners. You know who you are. <laughs> And uh, share, like, and subscribe. All that, all that jazz. And uh, see you, see you next time. Bye, bye.